Hello and welcome to the Monarch Human Performance Podcast. I'm your host, John Sillis. I just wanted to say to everyone who's reached out over social media with uh, positive comments on the show, thank you very much for taking the time. It's been really great to hear your feedback. Um, for the guys listening to this show, could I ask that on whichever platform you're using, that you leave us a review. This is going to help us grow the podcast and really spread our message out to a number of coaches, as well as potential tactical athletes out there who could really use the help from this podcast. If you're finding the information in this podcast useful, do me a big favor and get in touch and pass this on to one of your friends so we can continue to grow this podcast movement. On this week's episode, I'm joined by Josh Fletcher. Josh is a strength and conditioning coach with over 10 years industry experience. He's worked across multiple sports and nations and is currently working as an Exos performance manager on a tactical project in Europe. His particular areas of interest lie within coach development for the next generation of SNC coaches and the puzzle of building high performance structures. In this episode, Josh talks about overall program structure and how this has developed over time, creating buy-in within military organizations from the boots on the ground up to senior command, lessons learned over three years running this program, and the biggest barriers he has had to overcome in setting up and running this program. Afternoon, Josh, and welcome to the podcast, mate. Thank you very much. It's uh, it's good to be here. Got a lot of um, I really enjoyed listening to some of the guys you've had on before. It's uh, it takes different slant to a lot of the other podcasts that are out there, and um, the the heavy sort of tactical emphasis is, is definitely really interesting. So, yeah, I'm keen to uh, keen to share my experiences with you guys. No, thank you very much, mate. I mean, I heard you initially on the Science for Sport podcast, just talking a little bit about your role, and I thought you'd be a really interesting guest to come on and just to talk about what you're doing and what got you to your current position as well. So off the back of that, mate, um, just for anyone who isn't familiar with you and your work, could you just give us a little bit of overview of your career, where you started, where you're at currently? Yeah, sure, no problem. Uh, so I, I started out a similar route to most people, uh, which was the personal training route. Uh, I, I kind of um, realized quite quickly that I was probably a little bit more motivated than most of my clients, which uh, kind of drove me up the wall a bit, really. So I sought out something more, something bigger and better. Uh, quite interestingly, actually, I, I was thinking about strength and conditioning and I was trying to break break into semi-pro rugby, but I, hands like cow's tits, so I was never going to make it in rugby. Um, and I was coaching this guy, I was training this guy on his personal training who was a, a life coach. I didn't really know what that was at the time, but anyway, he says, oh, do you want to do a skill swap? So he would help me coach, uh, he would help coach me, and then I would do some training for him. Um, and he basically said, well, what, what is it you want to do? And I said, well, I think I want to get into like training elite athletes. And, and, and we did all these different sessions, and he basically, we did, we did some NLP. Um, and like at the time, I, I thought of it as like voodoo magic and mind games and all the rest of it. And, um, within i think it was within like three four weeks i'd really fo focused in and zoomed in on what it is i wanted to do i'd quit my personal training job which was like you know pretty decent pretty decent clients that 30 to 40 clients a week i had got ditched my girlfriend i had at the time i had uh, moved out of my big pimp in flat in manchester i moved into um and i'd taken up an unpaid internship in Sheffield uh, with the English Institute of Sport to do um, yeah, strength and conditioning internship for eight months. So I went from having a lot, oh, and I also quit rugby, which I was putting about 25 hours a week into. 
I figured I'd, I'd probably become a better coach than I would a uh, rugby player, considering I didn't really have much skill. Um, so yeah, the personal training route from there, EIS internship, lucky enough to roll into um, an EIS contracting role, a full-time role with EIS after that. That then came to an end, so that was a multi-sport role back in Manchester, working with, um, I was lucky enough to support Neil Parsley for the 2012 games. Okay. So learned a lot from him, uh, had some great mentors with um, people like Duncan French, Mark Simpson, um, Matt Cook was there as well. I think he's still, I think he's over in US football now. Uh, and uh, yeah, Neil Parsley, who's obviously got his, his underground training station, Jim. That kind of come to an end. Um, uh, after that, I, I kind of moved into professional rugby with Rotherham Titans and that's really kind of where my career started to open up and, and um, change if you like. Uh, it was just a, a, a real spit and sawdust, really gritty environment and just you had no choice but to adapt. Um, you, you work in full, you were the kicking team man, you were the absolutely everything there was. So, so I learned a hell of a lot. I made a, I made a serious amount of mistakes, and and I got so much abuse from the boys that you know you, you just it, it it makes you sink or swim. Um, well, I was kind of more doggy paddling than swimming, but uh, so from there I, I I really wanted something a bit different. I, I did three years there, and it was grind. It was really hard work, um, and I and I wanted to get outside of that environment a little bit. And in all honesty, I, I looked for something weird and wonderful, and um, and, and I and I found it. I, I went I went to India for a year, which was very much um, looking back probably just to escape that environment that I was in. Uh, in in India is just absolute chaos, uh, mm-hmm. most chaotic environment you can imagine. You got we our job was to um, our job was to the, the guy built an institute of sport. So the, the best way I can think to describe that is basically he built an Olympic village. He plonked it in a township kind of about 300 miles south of any, any sort of town or civilization. And um, we went around India scouting anywhere from seven to 27 year olds to um, come and join this institute. Now, the, the reason why it got interesting, the people were just so amazing. Um, but you've got people there that came to join us who had never had running water they'd never seen a toilet they didn't even know how to use a toilet they'd never even seen one they um didn't know what performance was they would just happen to be relatively good through grinding and doing what everyone else did um yeah we brought them all to this high spec state-of-the-art facility in the middle of nowhere away from their villages of which most people had never been outside incidentally and um yeah we tried to shape them into into athletes to, to become uh, future champions. Uh, I also worked lucky enough to work with some wrestlers in the early days, so some some pretty well-known wrestlers. Uh, yeah, and then after about a year, I, I moved into I applied for this job, uh, which I'm currently working with Exos as a performance manager slash advisor, with um, kind of consulting to the Romanian Special Forces. Which which is kind of where I am now, really. So, a little bit of a little bit of a roller coaster, um, and certainly been quite different in the last few years. But that's by design. Like I'm really keen and interested to sit outside my comfort zone as much as I can, really, and just have some life experiences as well. And I'm certainly getting that in the last 
two jobs I've been in. So That's nice, Josh. And I mean, it's interesting to hear how you made that jump from being quite comfortable as a, as a PT, you know, making some good money with uh, a broad client base to going into an unpaid internship for eight months. Uh, almost like taking a little bit of a gamble, but obviously it paid off you around some great guys to work with there at EIS. And now quite a very diverse background, as you say, going over from Rotherham to India, um, getting things just set up, like developing programs out there, and then that's led you into your role now. You talk to us a little bit about your role you're currently doing over in Romania, how it came about, and um, just your initial thoughts of moving from sport into the tactical environment. Yeah, so there's nothing, nothing flashy about how it came about. I saw, I saw a job advertised. I was, I was kind of looking for an out from India. Things hadn't gone, uh, they weren't, didn't go in the direction that I wanted them to. So I was looking for an out. Um, and uh, of course, everybody scours the job boards. One of those happened to be the Exos job boards. And I must, uh, probably the same as everybody else who's not from the US. I must have applied to about 20 Exos jobs and never heard anything back. Uh, and, and on this occasion, there was a tactical job and, and it happened to say Romania. And I thought, well, all right, well, I'll throw my hat in the ring. I, I got a phone call, um, had an interview and um, we, I guess they thought, because it was a little bit of luck and a little bit of my background, I suppose, because I was in India at the time and I, I kind of described the environment. Plus, I've been working with, you know, rugby players for the last three years. I think, they, I think the, the guy, John Stemmerman, uh kind of felt like that that i'd be that i could handle the environment it wasn't so much that i could do the job it was more that i could handle the environment and the type of people that we were going into um so there's no no kind of great story with 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 how it came about um and then yeah so so we we arrived and um i, I arrived with john and yeah kind of kind of boots on the ground and, and we walked in through the door um and we're in there um, their kind of forward operating base and the first thing that we were going to be doing was a, was a prep course um, we didn't really know what was going to happen in all honesty like we we had next to no information and that's kind of how it's continued for three three and a bit years uh, and uh, we, we sat down and the, the commander who was in charge at the time we, they were going around the table and everyone's introducing themselves and he says oh so who are you then i said oh i'm josh i'm josh fletcher i'm going to be uh here helping with uh with your human performance program he said with what so the human performance program so what's that so well, it it's the the physical training we're going to be helping deliver for uh your your recruits and he just said oh what you mean sports so so uh i kind of said like uh well yeah i guess so <laughs> and just had to try to muddle some sort of answer together as to what we were doing and that was that was representative of the, the everything because they just didn't know and to a large degree that a lot of people still don't what what human performance is but mm -hmm. you don't know what you don't know and if you've never had exposure to it you're never going to know so it's very much been um yeah i mean i think we'll go into it a little bit further down the line but it's um it was coming into a totally fresh environment where nobody really knew what physical, what performance training was, where culturally physical training wasn't necessarily um, at the forefront of, of, uh, of people's minds. So I guess now I'm, I'm the, the advisor. So I started off basically as the, the, like the only person really, and we delivered a uh, eight week preparation course. So we had 189 dudes walk through the door. Um, and 
you know, the, the mad or carnage or magic, it depends on, on uh, how you look at it, really. Um, we had 189 guys walk through the door. We had no facility, so we had to go and beg, borrow steel from around the base. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we had, um, we, we had some equipment coming, but nothing had arrived. So the only thing that had arrived were the weight plates and the weight bars. So we had 500 kilos worth of weight discs, ranging from 5 to 25 kilos, and we had eight bars, and we had 189 guys to train. Um, so we had to go, we had to, you know, go and buy some pipes from the DIY store and just go through absolute movement fundamentals and basics until just clinging on until our equipment arrived, really. So we did an eight-week preparation course, broke, broke everybody down into field teams of 60, and then we, we put them through a training program uh, with the goal of helping them to survive the rigors of selection and then the Q course after that. But within that, the main goal really was for them, if guys are going to drop out of selection, we wanted them to drop out because of mental weakness and the fact that they're not ready to be there and they're not right to be there rather than some sort of physical weakness. Uh, there's there's a lot of people all around the world who will drop out for physical weakness, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not the right people. It just means that they either didn't turn up in the right shape or that they didn't really know what it was they needed to do to get there, if that makes sense. Yeah. So after the prep course, they went into a selection phase. After the selection phase, which, which I was out of the way for, after that selection phase went into the Q course. Now I followed the Q course all around the country and they, they went from anywhere from the mountains down to, down to the sea. Uh, and I followed the students everywhere and was kind of pretty much entrenched with them. So we were delivering some sort of training based on three main principles, really. We were either uh, developing something, we were maintaining something or we're recovering from something, which if you extrapolate that to, to operators, so these were students, sorry. I should have clarified that. Uh, if you extrapolate that to operators, so a, a former operator has described it quite nicely. He says, you're either preparing for war, at war, or recovering from war if, you, if you're not in um, peacetime. So th that, was, that was quite a good way to, for me to conceptualize the, the role, really. Um, and, and then one of the major goals, really, was to help set up this program when, when nothing existed. And they described it as building the plane in flight. So just, just imagine that and, and picture that you're, you're taking off and you're still like knocking nails in and, and figuring that. Just actually imagine a plane taking off that's just completely not built. And, and we built it in flight. The, the goal at the end of three years, which we're kind of coming up to now, is or was to create a sustainable product where the Romanians could take care of their own physical training. Mm -hmm. and um, we we now have multiple coaches which are doing that so we started with one and now we've trained up i think it's 30 maybe 35 coaches to like a level one basic standard and two of those have progressed on we're, we're in we're kind of in bed with nshq as well so nato special forces headquarters to uh, facilitate our development of our education pathway and program and we're essentially taking taking coaches from zero to running a program fully. So that's, that's my role now is more of a, a, a um, coach educator and a, and a mentor really. So I've gone full circle. I've gone from delivering absolutely everything from regen sessions on 
uh, you know, in three, four foot of snow in the mountain. Yeah, through to, um, through to delivering education courses. So, yeah, a little bit of everything, really. A little bit of everything. Nice, man. Nice. Nice. That's a great overview for it. Can you just talk to us a little bit more? Like you mentioned there, the, the program's been up and running for about three years. Can you just talk to us a little bit how that's developed a bit more over time. And what, were your, uh, what was your base building blocks when you first got on the door? Obviously, you touched on just not having the kit that you needed and having to go body weight. What were the main things you were focused on around that before your kit arrived? Movement competency, more than anything. I mean, a lot of a lot of the students that we had, and and it's not uncommon to, it's not uncommon to the uh, the the community as well. Is mobility is generally pretty terrible, yeah. Um, and movement quality is actually pretty poor as well. They'll be absolute beasts. I mean, they can lift, they can lift whatever that you you ask them to. They can run. They, they can do all of that side of things. But the way that we looked at it was that they're living on borrowed time and, and they're going to start breaking down. It's just a matter of time. So we were taking guys who probably were doing some sort of physical training anywhere from one to three times a week. And we were going to be training them for, and then and they might do an hour, they might do two hours. And we were going to be training them for 90 minutes a day, every day, plus 45 minutes of regen in the afternoons. So we needed to make sure they're going to be robust enough to handle our training. And our training had to reflect that. So uh, it was absolute basics, fundamentals. And then we, we just progressed things from there. The main, the main thing, or the, the biggest, the most injurious activity really that a lot of operators have to do is rucking. So moving with any sort of load, load carriage, I think they probably call it in the, in the UK or, or tabbing maybe. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's one of the most injurious activities. So we had to teach them how to ruck. Uh, we had to teach them how to put the rock on, how to how to load up, how to how to move, how to pace, uh, and all these side of things. So, so our goals were based around absolute fundamentals. Um, and over the course of time, my my goal or the goal for the program, really, our, our tagline or motto, motto, if you like, is to create independent, intelligent uh, operators who understand the process and the intent of everything. So. They're independent. We're teaching them to become independent. We're teaching them to coach each other. So with, with a 60-man field team and one coach, it's just not enough eyes. So you need to break them down into subgroups. You need to find your leaders. You need to, find, you need to give everyone the ability to coach each other. So <laughs> we actually spent a lot more time, sorry, a lot less time doing reps and a lot more time coaching the quality and, and trying to emphasize the message. So um we initially thought it was dead time and then we thought actually this is a really sound investment of time to to create more coaches in the room then the the intelligent part was we're not always going to be there as coaches so we want them to be able to make the right decisions at the right time whether it's to put more load on the bar whether it's to go off feet rather than on feet etc so that was um that was something that, that that was important for us as well the, the decision making, yeah, like I said, make the right decision at the right time. And then the, the process, so the, the, the training process. So try and understand the systems rather than methods, principles, uh, trying to understand the different types of energy system development. Um, and then the, the final aspect of that was the intent of everything. So mm -hmm. how hard do I need to work at this particular activity? If it says 70%, what does 70% mean? If it's a, <clears throat> like a green zone type um, ESD, so it's, it's like uh, easy, 
what should I be able to do? I should be able to hold a conversation or I should be able to take two words every other breath or some, something along these lines so that they really understood what we're doing and why. Um, and, and that's where we're kind of trying to get to and be with the program now. Exercises don't, don't really matter. I mean, the squat pattern's a squat pattern, regardless of whether you do a leg press or a goblet squat. It just depends on what kit you've got. What was really important was understanding the, the impact of each different aspect of the training process on everything else. Um, and then in, in included in that, like a really big one, this might overlap into some of the other questions, but the really big one would be understanding the impact of what's come before and after. So if you're in a module in the Q course and you've got uh, something like small unit tactics, when you're on your feet a lot, you've got load on, on front and back, you, you've probably got your weapon with you, your time on feet is high. So we would look at that and say, well, we don't need a Ruckham if they're already got the load on their back. We, we don't need a Ruckham and we need to be cautious about what sort of running we do with them if we do any at all. Um, so trying to create that awareness of like the whole system and, and the total fatigue of the the actual training to become and being an operator is was is and was something that we're really striving for nice josh i mean i, I wholeheartedly agree with that i think a lot of coaches now are really keyed in on that of the bigger picture of what that individual or that operator is doing within their their weekly schedule and like you say what's come before and what's come after and how's that going to impact your session that you're doing with them can you talk to us as, as much as you can, I know, but what regards your, your program structure looks like at the moment? Like how do you divide up some of your strength work days, like your energy system development days within your weekly structure? Yeah, well, I guess you look at it from two perspectives. You look at it from an operator and then a student. So a student would be an, an, an individual, a recruit who's trying to make it to become a special forces operator. And then you've got your operators themselves. So there's a massive time crunch. Like time is kind of like the biggest enemy, really. So we need to be efficient. Um, the way that I personally look at it is I look at the whole week and, and I don't say, right, we need to do this and this and this and this. I say, right, what's the outcome? What do we need them to be able to do? It's the same as any coach does for the sport, really. So what's a practical training session going to be giving them? And if that session is going to be let's say it was rugby, if that session was going to be patterns and you could say to the coach, right, is this going to be repeated patterns and, and how long is this session going to be? And you could say, right, well, that's going to box off this work for me. So I don't need to do that. So we would always try and sync up with the cadre and say, look, what, what are you going to be doing? Because we need to judge whether we're going to do this or that. Um, and, and it's very much like a floating program where you can change things depending on what, what they're going to be doing. And, and that is where the education side of things comes in, especially for the operators. Mm -hmm. So they know, right, we're in the field. So uh, we're, we're on our feet all day. Um, we're, we're at the range. So I'm not going to go back and do my strength session where I've got, you know, five by three trap bar deadlift or, or something. They're, they're going to go, right, well, I'm going to do some mobility. Then I'm going to do some off-feet conditioning. And then tomorrow I'm going to be fresh, ready to go for my lift. Um, so essentially it, it, we're, we're looking at some sort of running based activity in the week. Normally we are one of the biggest lessons I've learned is that you don't actually need to run to get better at running. Um, and that might raise a few eyebrows, but we have situations here where in our first year here, 
we couldn't run because there was three, four foot of snow. We don't have any treadmills. So what we're going to do? Well, we can rock in the snow, but that's dangerous. That's injur potentially injurious. So, so we had to do uh, mixed training methods and, and our run times went through the roof and they continued to stay high for the entirety of the course. Um, we had a, we had quite a harsh winter in the first year where I think there was maybe three months where I think we managed to get two runs done in three months oh. and yet all the students were absolutely flying so I, I really learned the I learned that you don't have to run to get to get good at running and I, I learned that if you're smart with your energy systems programming then you um, you can really hit adaptations as long as you're you know getting some tissue tolerance work in there ready for when they do eventually start running again um so normally if we can run there would be some sort of running um i'm not an advocate of long slow steady state running so our our running is is mainly tempo based stuff so we're doing sort of three four minute efforts um maybe 400 meters 800 meter efforts um we're quite conscious of time on feet depending on the module um and what they've module they're going to and what module they've come from we would always have some uh, one uh, at least one lift probably two mostly where we're just focusing on the major movement patterns uh, as a bolt-on to the back end of that session we would always have some sort of tissue tolerance based work which would some people might call it muscular endurance and that would be um, the mini muscles that that are taking a pounding and that are going to be protecting the joints so things like calves glutes um, retraction these sorts of things and we're just going to hit that in some sort of circuit format then we would normally ruck again depending on what modules they've got before or after uh, we find that the, the biggest challenge that our students have is rucking um, they can be the fittest fittest guys out there but as soon as they as soon as they put a pack on their back then they just flounder so we, we have to have a recurring theme of rucking in the program somewhere. Um, if they're in small unit tactics or they're in a module where they're going to have load on their back, then we don't need to worry so much about that. Um, and we've always got quite a, um, we tend to do sort of a, a two up, um, two high, one down, two high type program, mm -hmm. uh, always finishing with kind of a heavy regen focus. If we are in a, location where we're lucky enough to have off-feet kit then we'd do a fair bit of off-feet off-feet uh, conditioning as well if we if we um depending on the module again i mean with regards to the stuff you were saying before josh as well um about you know hitting the ground running and having to build the plane in, in flight uh what would you say uh some of the the biggest lessons or the key lessons you've learned running this program uh, how long have you got so there's <laughs> I always, I always tell the same story when everybody says, oh, what was it like when you first came through the door? And what, 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 um, what was the biggest lesson you learned? And before I even, I guess I was a typical SNC coach for the, the vast majority of my career where I, I was just cocky and arrogant and thought I knew more um, than, than I probably actually did. Um, and I knew that that wasn't going to fly in this environment. And I knew that there was a lot of change that I needed to make. So I, I kind of created this um, this um, thought process in my mind, which helped keep me kind of in line and honest with that on a day-to-day -day basis. And that was along the lines of, um, right, I'm walking through the door on zero respect. So I'm not soft. 
so I'm on minus one. Uh, of course, I'm non-military, so I'm on minus two. I'm a foreigner, I'm on minus three. I am also a contractor who aren't always looked upon that favorably in some situations, so I'm on minus four. Um, and I don't speak the language, so I'm on minus five for respect before I've even opened my mouth, done anything at all. So I'm thinking, right, how am I going to play this one? Uh, so, so I just, I really focused, I, I became really self-aware of the environment and I became self-aware of my role within that environment. I think that's something that, that we as coaches can, can and should do a lot better. Just actually step back, pause, just pump the brakes a little bit and use our two ears and one mouth in the right ratio. Once you get people talking, it's amazing what they'll actually say that's going to help to inform your decision and improve your communication outcomes. So I, I really focused on trying to facilitate, not, not tell people what I know. And I, I, in all honesty, like I think I went six months and nobody could tell a thing about me. Nobody knew a thing about me, but nobody asked. Well, absolutely fine. If no one asks, I'm not going to say because I'll talk about them. I'll talk about them and I'll build the rapport. I'll build those relationships. And eventually, if they want to, they can ask questions about me and then, then we can have a conversation. But ultimately, it was, it was about them and, and me letting them know that I'm there for them and I'm invested in, in them and what I'm doing. So I, I, as part of that kind of self-awareness, I'm, I know that I was a mini cog in the whole of the system but it was a cog that could have a really, really significant impact on the rest of their career and also their lives in terms of their movement quality. Um, and what, what I tried to do was be really honest and open, like as a civilian coming into it, I just would say to people, look, I'm, you guys have been running and gunning for five, 10, 15 years, whatever it is, you guys know this world and this environment here's what I've been doing for the last 10 or 15 years. And, and I'm looking to learn as much as I can about your environment in order to do the best possible job that I can for you. So please take me to the range. Please take me to like, I want to learn. I want to know. And, and I just put myself in a bit of a vulnerable position to say, I want to know everything there is to know about your world in order to do a better job for you. So essentially their SMEs in their world, like a subject matter expert. And I, I, was a subject matter expert in physical training and all I needed to do was that I think there's a reason why most of the uh, special forces communities now in US, Canada, Australia, etc., are employing civilians is because we've been doing this 10, 15 plus years and it's easier to teach somebody how to, how to behave, how to act, how to understand the world of, SF than it is to teach someone who's former SF how to become a really good strength coach. Mm -hmm. So I think that was, that was really important, but essentially, yeah, two, two ears and one mouth and sometimes actually shutting up is, is a really, really good idea. So, um, nobody really cares how much, you know, in all honesty, they, they just, they, you, I needed to let the exercises do the talking. I needed to let the training do the talking. Um, and, and one of the best things that, I could possibly have done was to get the commander who was in charge at that point on board and training himself. After that, he was just converted. You can come and watch something with your eyes. You can, you can have all the feedback you want, but if you actually get in there and do it and get hands on, he came and trained with the students and he just went, wow, I, I never realized any of the, this thing that this was possible. Um, 
you know, just using my body or just using an elastic band or, or, or something. So yeah, it was, it was huge. Um, th there's a language barrier. There's no two ways about that. So I got really good at, and the same in India, um, there's an international language of smiling and laughing and you can diffuse near enough every, com every, uh, a lot of uh, language based situations. If you just put a big ass smile on your face and, and laugh at yourself. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's what, that's what I would do. And I would try and everybody would laugh at me and I would just show that little bit of glimmer of, I don't know, what do you want to say vulnerability or, or that I'm all right to, for people to take the piss out of me as well. Um, and, that, and that was something that, uh, that, that I learned to, to do in India and I, and I carried through to Romania. Also uh, get very, very good at demonstrating. So I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but when you can't speak a lick of the 17 different languages or something that they have in India, then there's no point even learning because they've got so many. I think it's 20 or 20 something languages. So you've got people from all around the country and you're trying to coach. So you just have to get good at gestures. You have to get good at um, feedback, your eye contact. You, do, you need to be like a, I think I had some people calling me the hawk at one point or, or, the, or the eagle because I just had, I, I was looking everywhere. I was moving everywhere. I was, I was all over the place. And I think in a session I was walking like maybe three, four, three, four kilometers in a, in a session because I couldn't speak the language. So I needed people to know that I was everywhere. I needed people to know that I was watching that if there were mirrors there, I was using them. If there were, um, if there were high, if there was high ground, I was on it so I could see everybody. If there was a way to take a shortcut, I was doing it because I had one pair of eyes and you're overseeing 60 dudes. So yeah, th those things, those things are really important. And it's, um, it adds a lot of value to to the environment to to be able to be self-aware of your role and and know that you're not the most important person in the room or that your department's not the most important there are times when it's more important than some of the others like pre-season maybe uh or more important than in season but there are other times when you just need to step back and say all right and and of course don't let don't let great be the enemy of good like good is good is enough you know good's acceptable it's it doesn't have to be great all the time when you strive for great but you know good is good is enough most of the time obviously it's really interesting to see how you went into that environment um, just to just to get that that buy-in from the guys as well i know from my own coaching experience like walking into different sports um you know with some preconceived ideas you've got around it and you find out that the guys don't care what you know until you actually sit down and actually take the time to invest and learn what they want and what's important to them. And just that humility, as you touched on there, you said a little bit about like having an issue around uh, language barrier and some of the kit issues as well. What were the big main barriers you found, Josh, when you first started there? The main issues that we have here are the same worldwide. They're the same in the most equipped gym the most equipped facility, the most expert and professional environment you can ever imagine. Mm -hmm. And that is the fact that it's change. And, and the change is not always supported by everybody. People fear change. So you're, you're trying to, you're not going to get everybody on board. So straight away, it's going to be a long, slow drag. Sometimes it's going to be 
two steps forward and two steps backwards, but you've got to keep plugging away. Um, you've got to understand. So change and changing the culture. So it takes a long time to get bad habits ingrained often. And especially if you have generations of these bad habits. Uh, so you, they're not going to change overnight. So remove the expectation that they're going to change overnight. And then, uh, so I would always try to do things like just let people know that things can be different and better, but not in a, in a confrontational way, not in a challenging, challenging them way in a, you know, just a positive and, and let, let people figure it out for themselves. But it's a little bit like uh, playing 3d chess out here really. And because you, there's different stakeholders and with those different stakeholders, you've got to have, you're trying to influence change. In order to influence change, you have to have some specific things in place. So let's say here, for example, in the military world, and I know that John Paul Nevin will relate to this because I had a conversation with him about it. Um, you, you need to have think three things, in my opinion. You've got to have doctrine. Okay, so you've got to have the, what was, I think it's like the legal background and basis and, and essentially the orders for the physical training to take place and potentially take place in a certain manner. So doctrines, number one, you have to have the education. So you have to have the people that are going to be able to support the delivery of this. And then you have to have the facilities and the resources and the equipment to, to deliver these at the different units. Once those three things are in place, you've prepped the battlefield ready to go and take your issue to the higher echelons. And um, then things can start to change on a wholesale level. But before you can change on a wholesale level, you've got to get your change champions each to a different level. So you've got to get your boot, you guys on the ground, so the boots on the ground, you've got to get your, the guys at the top. But the top and the bottom are almost the easier ones because they tend to, the, the guys on the ground are the ones that are experiencing it, feeling it day in, day out and saying, wow, this is, there's something in this. And the guys at the top tend to be a little bit more like visionary, if you like, um, so they can see why and how it might work but it's the guys in the middle who are going to be actioning and kind of implementing that change and dictating whether time and effort and finance and resource is put to it or not so you have to try to find your change champions at each level and and that's it's it's simple but it's definitely not easy mm -hmm. so especially in a in a military st structure and, and i know that if john paul was the John Paul was to listen to that, he would be like, oh, yeah. I mean, I think it took him 10 years to get his, uh, his doctrine across the line. Um, and and he's, he's banging and grinding away. And, and now look what's happened. He's just created an a, a undergraduate degree course for military operators. It's absolutely incredible. So it just shows what is possible if you just keep plugging away. The, the, the whole process, it, it's not... Um, so change change is the biggest thing like I could, I could talk about language barriers i could talk about resources and facilities and and how you know tell some weird and wonderful stories about resources and facilities but it's not the most impactful thing i can say i think the most impactful thing i can say is understanding the process of change what is required for it to happen mm -hmm. to make it sustainable and to and to get people on board in order for you to have not just a one-man band, but you need other people singing your tune for you. Um, so there has to be a strategy and there has to be a process. There must be, in my opinion, a strategy and a process in place for your communication. So, right, 
I know that I have some high brows come in to watch training. Now I need them to know specific things. The first thing that I know about high brass is they're very busy. So my first job is to buy more time. So someone will come and tell me you've got five minutes. Yeah, yeah, of course I've got five minutes. I don't need five, I need 20. So within that first five minutes, my sole task is to buy more time. So I'll try to plan my communication in that first five minutes to, to drop something in there to buy more time. And yes, I'm gonna screw up their schedule for the rest of the day, but in, in my mind, them knowing what we're doing is, is gonna be facilit facilitating our development. So the first goal is to buy more time. But if I had tried to cram as much into five minutes as possible and stick to the time and respect that rule or that, that guideline, then I'd never have been able to say everything we wanted to say. And they would have gone, well, okay, that's cool. Off we go. But spark some interest within that first five minutes. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got somebody on board and you've got someone asking questions of everyone around them then that has some, some sway. So, um, understanding your communication and, and the role of that planning your communication which is something that very few people do what do you want as your outcome and then maintaining control of that communication the, the whole way through that that process um yeah i mean these things that, that if, i get a bit excited about things like communication and i love all the stuff that brett bartholomew puts out there and, and i'm hoping that there's going to be a big shift in the industry um <laughs> because the, the programming and the knowledge and, and understanding is just not enough these days. So the, the number one thing that, that you can do with any athlete or with any operator, like especially in a tactical world would be to make them feel better within a very short space of time. So uh, smooth out their lift or put an extra kilo on the bar or tweak something or give them some sort of movement that is going to make them feel better and then leave it at that and then let them come back to you. Um, that would be probably the biggest thing. Again, it depends if you're dealing with operators or students, students don't necessarily have so much of a voice. I mean, quite often they're not given names until they graduate the Q course. So, um, I mean, a student will essentially do what do what they what they're told to do. So I focus the answer a bit more on the operators, really. Um, the, the biggest and most important question: How can I help you? What can I do for you? Because there's no point you going in there with your own agenda. I mean, these are smart dudes. These are the guys who really don't want some kid coming in saying who's got no SF experience, saying, "Oh, you need to do this and that and the other." Hey, what, what are you struggling with? What do you want to do? <clears throat> oh well, I, I can't get deep enough on my squat. Oh, okay, cool. Well, let's have a look. Or I can't overhead press and I want to. Or my shoulder hurts when I do this or that. Or I feel like my running could be a bit better. Has you got any recommendations? And find an in, find some buy-in in a non-confrontational and a non-threatening um, manner, and, and offer something. But also totally accept that they might not pick it up and you might put something out there and they're like well yeah not for me and they'll go away and maybe they'll come back maybe they won't but you leave the door open um some people it takes time some people it takes a long time i've heard stories of people like two two plus years to to, to get get buy-in from from some of these operators because they're 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 smart guys who are inherently um 
the trust and trust doesn't doesn't come as quick as it does with an athlete and that's for a reason they're a unique group of individuals and they're purposely chosen and, and they're like this for a reason and the reason is that they we, and we want to keep them like this so we're not going to challenge the alphas they're alphas and you don't challenge you don't try and out alpha the alpha i mean that's this is their world you're stepping into it so you need to know your role within that um but yeah i think i'm maybe waffling a little bit there so yeah um what, what was the original question Totally lost track. <laughs> it was just um, just some of the methods you'd use to obviously to get that buy-in from the, um, the boots on the grounds, the, like the operators as opposed to the higher command guys. Yeah, yeah, they 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 just want to know that you care, really, the same as everybody else, and and make them feel better, um, and check in on them as well. So every so often, hey, send them a message or or hey, how's that back injury? Good. Yeah, cool. Need anything? No. Nope. Sweet. Give me a shout if you do. Um, so they'll eventually come to you if they want to and if they don't they won't so being too forceful with these guys just nah, it's not going to fly that's been really insightful just to hear your your journey through this process Josh of like how you've helped to grow this program over the over the past few years you know from the, the actual structure to the, again the buy-in from operator to up to senior commanders and stuff and that as well um as I always ask on this podcast, I'm always interested to know what people are looking at with regards to CPD and stuff like that. So could you give us a book, app, or web, uh, website recommendation that you found useful? Yeah, I mean, literally for the last kind of two, three years, I've not done any. I, well, I shouldn't, shouldn't say I've not done any. I've done a fair bit. But the main part of my education has been around trying to understand people a bit better mm-hmm. in, with a view to improving my <clears throat> my coaching, my leadership and my um my communication so uh i just look at my bookshelf I, i've got the, one of the biggest ones for me and if you haven't read this like everybody's got to read this especially coaches in our work our communities uh, ego is the enemy so read it and then probably put it down and go and reread it maybe i shouldn't say this i'm painting myself in a bad light but i read this book and and I was honestly like looking over my shoulder saying, is someone following me and writing a book about my life and the things I do? It was just, it was just ridiculous. It was such a big like slap in the face, like a reality check that so many of the things I was doing for, were for all the wrong reasons. And, and, and I actually read that book every year. Um, and it's not because I consider myself to be like super arrogant. It's because it keeps me honest mm-hmm. and, and it stops me running away with myself and, and it keeps me, in check and in check and ensuring that everybody that I'm trying to facilitate to grow and improve is at the forefront and, and it helps me to grow and improve. Uh, other things would be like the, the, I think it's growth mindset. I think I've got that one on the go at the moment. Um, Brett Bartholomew's book, of course, that, that should be a bit of a, the starting block really. Yeah. And, and what that will do is help people to say, to, to understand in a really structured, really methodical and very clear way that communication is probably a little bit more important than your programming. Here's, a, here's an example I always use to the younger coaches that I work with. If you ask anybody, well, I'll, I'll ask you now, we'll see how it goes. How important would you say communication is in the coaching process? So if you could put a percentage on it, you've got, I don't know, your programming and your, your knowledge and your... Um, and your anatomy all that side of things and then you've got communication 
uh, if you had to divide that like into a hundred percent, what what percentage weighting would you give to each? Honestly, if I was to sit my younger coach himself, I would say, oh well, it'd probably be fifty fifty between the program and the science knowledge, and then the communication side. As I've gotten older, I'd probably jump that communication up to probably about ninety percent, and like ten percent would be down to the programming, like being able to get buy-in from athletes. I've had it in the past as well, where I've had athletes have wrote, you know, great programs that I know will work and get them to the results they want, and they just don't buy in. They don't follow the program as it's meant to be, and you know the results are crap. And then you, you have to sit down like, well, what is it you truly want from this program? Until you start asking those questions and getting that buy-in and getting feedback from them you're not going to get the, the full jump forward that you really want to. So, yeah, I'd say I'd put majority nowadays as a coach on the communication side of things. Yeah. So, so in the early days, you would have, you'd look back and you'd say 50-50, yeah? Yeah. So the question that I asked that first question to, to younger coaches or to, to coaches in general, and then I asked this next question. So is 50% of your time or, or was 50% of your time, your education time, your personal development time put towards improving your communication? Yeah, good question. Actually, no, no, it wasn't then. So I'd say it was even less. It was probably about 25% of the time was put towards that. So that's really interesting. That's the vast majority of people. So I think, well, hang on a minute. Like, this is the type of thing that Brett Bartholomew is talking about. It's like, well, the division of your time is totally skewed towards the professional, um, professional texts and, you know, periodization and all these sorts of fundamentals. But there's not that many people going away and doing uh, Googling self-awareness and taking personality tests on themselves and, and trying to understand, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapies and and these sorts of things to to you know motivational interviewing and and trying to understand how to actually frame a conversation and a communication by communication i obviously mean like a conversation uh better and more effectively like you want better communication outcomes so i, I know i've got off, gone off on a bit of a rant there but i'm, I'm just passionate about this communication side of things so um, anything related to that is is what I'm I'm into and I'm reading and and you've got to, got to keep up with the literature on what was happening in, in the in the industry and and um, uh, frameworks like strength coach network and science for sport are great great for that because it summarizes mm -hmm. a lot of things in in a, in a very succinct manner so that's brilliant but you really got to put some time and attention and invest into the into the other side of things because you will reap the rewards later down the line. And most, most coaches, as we get a bit older, are moving towards the communication side anyway. So why not just try and jump ahead and get, get left at a bang? Because there will come a point in most people's careers when they go, I probably lost out on that job, that opportunity, that interview, because I didn't articulate myself properly. Yeah. And I didn't get the right outcome because of something I did. Like, I'm going to blame myself. I'm going to blame everybody else for, I don't know, one, two, three, four, five years or however long until you realize, yeah, that was all me because I didn't do something right with my communication. So, yeah, that's, um, that's, the, that's the big thing for me at the moment. Nice. Nice, Josh. I mean, really good insight into that, mate. Um, Josh, this has been a really interesting chat just to hear about like, how you've grown this program, how you found hitting the ground running, getting into like, a completely different world outside of sport, and just really insightful just to hear your thoughts around coaching and getting the buy-in from different guys as well. For anyone who's been listening to this, how can guys get in touch with you and you know how can people follow some of the work you're doing 
you can find me on LinkedIn, Josh, Josh Fletcher. Um, I'll be wearing a red shirt with a big goofy smile. Then you could also email me if you wanted to, jdfletcher1984 at gmail.com. And then Instagram, which I think is uh, jfletcherperformance. But you, if you could put that in the show notes, because I always forget what it's supposed to be. <laughs> yeah, no worries, mate. I'll make sure I get all those uh, those points linked into our show notes, mate. Don't worry about that. Yeah, it, it is jfletcher underscore performance, actually. Yeah, I, I thought I got that wrong. So <laughs> should know that, really. Oh, that's cool, Josh. No worries, mate. Um, Josh, thanks a lot, mate. Appreciate the, uh, taking the time to speak to me, mate. It's been, been a great chat with you. Thank you for your time. No worries, bud. See you later, bud. So I think, I think the change, change, change is it, but change is the, the biggest thing, um, the biggest barrier, not, not language barrier. I mean, you know, you can work around that, not no facilities, not no equipment. No, you can work around all of these things. It's, mm -hmm. it's, trying to encourage people to uh to change mentalities is a slow burn but something that's that's achievable if you have put the time and attention into it nice and i mean with regards to that initiating that change you were talking a bit there josh about the the higher up and the commanders you know that you spoke to to buy a bit more time to really sell your program to them and get them to buy into the concept around it as well as i think you said earlier having the commander come in and train with you guys as well so he could feel and experience it. How did you get that buy-in from not the top brass, but the guys you were working with day to day, like the boots on the ground, other than just um, you know being in and taking interest in who they were as individuals? Was there any other methods you used to get that buy-in from those guys? Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening in today. If you enjoyed the content here, please check out our website at monarchhumanperformance.com and sign up for our newsletter. To stay up to date with future podcast episodes, articles, and upcoming content, including training programs and live and online workshops.